More than three years after the Catholic Church was rocked by rape allegations in a shock judgment on 14 January, the National District and Sessions Court in Kottayam acquitted ex-Bishop Franco Mulakal of rape charges filed against him by a 46-year-old nun. In a 289-page verdict, Additional Sessions Judge G. Gopakumar held the victim's statement as quote-unquote inconsistent and that quote-unquote the prosecution has failed to give a proper explanation for the inconsistent version. However, the verdict saw some bizarre reasoning to arrive at this conclusion, from an inexplicable dismissal of important disclosures by the survivor to other nuns, to calling the primary supporting witness in the case quote-unquote unreliable. In her allegation, the survivor stated that the bishop has raped her 13 times between 2014 and 2016. However, what followed was a harrowing experience both inside and outside the court for the survivor and the nuns who came out to support her. And the way the trial had gone about, with multiple witnesses brought forward by the prosecution who supported the survivor's testimony, Kerala Police's thorough investigation in the case, the final verdict outraged not only women activists, but also the legal community given the several loopholes in the judgment. In today's episode, we are going to take a look at the judgment and what the reasoning it gives for acquitting Bishop Franco and why it is problematic. Joining me today to unpack the verdict is Vakasha Sasdev, the Queen's legal editor, and sister Lucy Kalapura, who had supported the survivor from the start. Get tuned in to the Big Story, the podcast where we dissect the headline-making news for you, and I'm your host, Emmat. Before we dive into the verdict, here is a short recap of the case. In June 2018, a 43-year-old nun from Kerala, also the mother superior belonging to the Missionaries of Jesus Congregation based in Punjab, had filed a police complaint in Kottayam claiming that Bishop Franco, the former head of the Latin Catholic Diocese in Jalandhar, had raped her several times between 2014 and 2016. After several long days of protest under the banner of quote-unquote Seva Sisters, by nuns and several women organizations bishop franco was arrested on 24 september 2018 during this time pope francis also relieved franco of his pastoral duties however just a month later on 15th october bishop franco was granted bail by the kerala high court while the trial began in november 2019 it got challenged multiple times by franco who took it all the way to the supreme court as well while the battle inside the court was taking place the survivor and the nuns supporting her faced a lot of backlash from the community sisters anupama kela mangalutu veliel nina rose josephine villu nickel ansita urumbel and alfi pallasheril residing at the saint francis mission home in kerala's kottayam district have been shunned away from the congregation for supporting the survivor and when the verdict for the case came on 14 january sister lucy kalapura who has been supporting the survivor from the start and was also expelled from the franciscan claris congregation fcc labeled it as quote unquote illegal unfair and atrocious congregation's vithi verdict sherikum pene kodil devathinte neethi allengil neethiyude devatha അവിടെ കരഞ്ഞിട്ടുണ്ട് എന്നാണ് ഞാൻ വിശ്വസിക്കുന്നത് അല്ലെങ്കിൽ അവിടെ നീതി നിഷേധിക്കപ്പെട്ടു അതിന്റെ വലിയ വേദനയുണ്ട് സത്യത്തിലെ പ്രതിയെ രക്ഷപ്പെടുത്താൻ വേണ്ടി ഇരയ്ക്കു വേണ്ടി കുറ്റങ്ങൾ കണ്ടെത്ത് കണ്ടെത്തുന്ന ഒരു പ്രക്രിയ പോലെയാണ് ആ ഇരുന്നൂറ്റി എൺപത്തി ഒൻപത് പേജുള്ള ആ വിധിവാചകങ്ങളിൽ മുഴുവനും 
ഹോറിഫിക് when we are exploited like this when a person is exploited then she loses all hope to live a regular life if this is how the court treats us then should all the women live in fear all the time i stand in solidarity with the sisters justice is not reserved for only a few who have money and power it is for everybody a nun is also an indian citizen The Indian constitution guarantees rights and freedom to everyone. We know that this society believes in our truth and we are all with the survivor. അവിടെയാണ് നമ്മൾ രാജ്യത്തിന്റെ നിയമവ്യവസ്ഥയെ ആശ്രയിക്കുന്നത്. അപ്പോൾ ഇങ്ങനെ ഈ കേസിൽ ഇത്രയും അന്യായപരമായിട്ട് വിധി വന്നപ്പോൾ നമ്മളൊക്കെ ഇനി എങ്ങനെയാണ് നമ്മുടെ ഇത്തരത്തിലുള്ള സ്ത്രീകൾ കുട്ടൻകുട്ടികൾ നിയമവ്യവസ്ഥയെ and at the end of each part the queen's legal editor vakasha sasdev will weigh in on why that particular judgment is problematic the first two problems are related so i'll club them together the first problem the court noted that the delay in filing a complaint by the survivor where it said that while the sexual violence took place between may 2014 and september 2016 the complaint was only filed in june 2018 the second problem was that the court's view of the victim made to court and court share a bed with bishop franco The court also noted in its judgment that in the initial disclosures to church figures in 2017 the survivor did not specifically mention that she was subjected to sexual violence and that in a letter in May 2018 the survivor did not specify that she was raped 13 times these kind of inconsistency according to the court discredited the survivor's credibility however vakasha says that a delay in filing the complaint should not be considered fatal to the case he expands on that the key witnesses brought forward by the prosecution also support the survivor's testimony so let's sort of go over these issues um one by one i mean now the thing is there's a the fact that the court actually clearly deals points out that under law when it comes to rape complaints there can be a delay and that the delay in filing a complaint should not be considered fatal to the case and on this point uh, once the court has said that you'd think that it's going to then not allow any questions of oh why is there a delay here coming uh, come into play but it's bizarre that the court continuously keeps doing that and it does that on a bunch of very problematic um assumptions because what the court says is that okay fine there you know there can be a delay when these kind of things happen in a rape case especially given the nature of the offense this can be there but then what is important for the court to look at is if there were contemporaneous points where the survivor spoke to other people talk to them about the about the assault so that it you know so even though there's a delay there have been people who at that time were made aware of it so that kind of shows that you know this isn't just something which is being made up later down the line now 
the thing is that there is uh, there are these disclosures by the survivor to specific witnesses who were the key witnesses for the prosecution but the court discredits each of them and for very very problematic reasons the biggest reason which the court has and it, this is it's just bizarre is that the court says that in the that according to what the survivor said in her testimony according to what these witnesses have said that at the time so beginning with one uh, person who she told in december 2014 so you know uh, while the assaults were still going on when they had started in may 2014 continued as as she says afterwards in december 2014 she told uh, her spiritual mother uh, prosecution witness to sister lissy um then after that in uh, 2016 in september again just soon after the 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 last sort of assault took place she told two other uh, nuns that uh, about this but now the language she used and this is what the court takes objection to is that she says she was forced to share a bed with this priest this is the same language she uses even when she's uh, again supposedly uh, speaks to a bishop who you know who she knew well in the, in, in 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 the church now the court says that this language of sharing a bed is not enough to say that she was disclosing sexual violence to them which is just utterly bizarre i mean if you look at it even from a common lay person's perspective that is a perfectly normal way to describe it and especially when you look at it that this is a nun who has taken vows of chastity there's so many other issues of you know being from a conservative background etc etc so many things here um it's completely legitimate that she didn't want to obviously explain the exact details of what happened to her and has used this term which is which conveys the message entirely and yet the court then says oh so therefore you know we can't therefore this there aren't enough contemporary um, disclosures and therefore delay becomes an issue which i mean it's 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 so on the so not only is the court let delay come into play it's then had a problem and said that the, that the delay is a problem based on a very very inexplicable idea of what a disclosure about a sexual violence uh, act is supposed to be so you know it it just makes no sense what the court has done here and it's allowing it to it, it, what it's doing is it's doing something which because of this it's 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 letting this potential delay in filing the complaint become fatal to the case even though it itself had acknowledged that it's not supposed to be doing third problem that the court said that the prosecution failed to produce digital evidence such as mobiles laptops that will help corroborate the allegation that the accused used to send obscene messages to the victim vakasha believes that while the court is entirely correct in scrutinizing these issues and that these were indeed some errors from the side of the prosecution the court's observations don't deal with the evidence or issues that were actually relevant to the crux of the case so look um there is a standard issue which keeps happening which we have to acknowledge can happen in a criminal law case is that if the police or the prosecution make mistakes so either the collection of the evidence or the presentation of evidence in certain forms if certain formalities and procedural aspects are not followed that can be fatal to even a case which you know looks like it's absolutely strong and if that happens you can't really say that the court has done something wrong if they acquit a person because at the end of the day that is what a court is meant to do it has to look at these kind of procedural things they may seem nitpicky they may seem like a problem but at the end of the day in criminal law you have to prove things beyond reasonable doubt so it is understandable if uh, a court acquits someone because those procedures aren't followed because that's the kind of bedrock of ensuring that the law is followed that you know you don't have um convictions of innocent people like procedures meant to help that even though it can seem formalistic and technical and unnecessarily problematic but the thing is now 
there are certain there certainly seem to be some problems with what the uh, police and the prosecution have done here. There are some basic errors which have been made about, um, especially about taking uh, getting you know the sort of certificates for digital evidence. You know where they're saying okay we've got this on an email or we've got this from a website. You are required to submit these uh, certificates under the Evidence Act, which does not appear to have been done um, for some some of some of the key things here. Like you know there are receipts for the letters and about the complaints which she sent. Uh, to uh, people in the church before she filed her police complaint. Now those, so the fact that the police have not done those things, I mean, yes, that's a problem. But what is strange is that the uh, court brings up certain other aspects and says that, oh, they didn't submit relevant evidence or they didn't do things, uh, which is not entirely quite so clear. Because now, for instance, they say that why was the mobile phone and the laptop off um, you know, of the uh, survivor not submitted. Why was the mobile phone for her cousin and her husband who are involved with this because of the complaint which the cousin filed against her, um, you know, which is separate to this, but is then argued to be the reasoning behind all of this. Uh, the All of these, they're saying that why were these devices, you know, not seized? Why were copies not submitted to the court, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that is... On paper, that would seem relevant, but that's not entirely relevant to the issue at hand here, because while there is a mention that there were some messages sent by Mulakal to the survivor, that's not really central to this case at all. And um, as regards the complaint by her sister, by her cousin, sorry, and her cousin's husband, the, the messages which are supposed to be involved in that whole situation there, that's not relevant because that's not proved. So if the prosecution is not making that a core part of their argument, because in fact, it was the cousin who actually told the court that the complaint was false. Once that was the case, there was no need to delve any more into those messages or into any of those issues. So for the court to say that the, that the prosecution should have done that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yes, there have been some procedural problems with what the prosecution did. Maybe they should have got the phone, but at the end of the day, many people don't keep their phones beyond the point. And you can't necessarily draw an adverse inference unless that was crucial or central to the prosecution case, which it really wasn't here. So, you know, these kind of observations being there and being made to are, are then used by the court to make it look like the prosecution's done something really bad here, which, as I said, can very often be the case. And there are some flaws also with what the prosecution, the police did here. But no, those aren't relevant or do not deal with the crux of the case and should not therefore be part of the reason why the court has to acquit Mulakal. Uh, the fourth problem, the character assassination of the complainant nun, where the court went into the survivor's private life. And the court does this by dissecting a letter by the survivor's cousin, Jaya, who alleged that the former indulged in sexual intercourse with her husband. This, therefore, offered a different explanation to the medical findings of the investigation. And though Jaya, who deposed before the court and said that the petition was false and was given in the backdrop of a family feud, the court refused to consider this. The court said, and I quote, even if it is assumed that the complaint was a false complaint, from the mere fact that the victim's hymen was found torn, penile penetration or forceful sexual intercourse cannot be inferred, end quote. Wakasha weighs in on how the court in his judgment used this complaint to cast a shadow on the survivor, thus further discrediting her testimony. So one of the things is that to an extent, this doesn't really, um, this doesn't do the kind of character assassination that say we saw in the Tarun Tejpal judgment, or at least explicitly it doesn't do it. But what this uh, judgment does is that it, I mean, yes, the court has to look at all the factors and including what the defense is arguing, including 
the theories which are put out there by them to kind of argue against it, which create doubt about the survivor's testimony. Because at the end of the day here, the key evidence is the survivor's testimony. You have to really look at whether her testimony is of sterling enough quality that you can um, that you can convict a person on the basis of this. Now, her character is not relevant to it, but there are ways in which this can be you know, used to discredit aspects of the testimony. Now, that's not done here in a way like where we saw the kind of language we saw in the Tarun Tejpal verdict, where there was almost an express kind of thing about her being a woman of, you know, who was, who, or, or, or who was of loose morals or whatever. And like, you know, and the way it kind of tried to portray her sex life and her personal private life as things against her. Now, that's not been done here, but the court does some very strange things in the judgment, which implicitly are casting a shadow on her. And key to that, key to that is the way in which it um, looks at the complaint filed by her cousin against her, which, we, which you know I've already mentioned. Now, the thing about that complaint was it said, according to the cousin of the survivor, she told uh, she wrote a complaint to the church saying that, you know, this one has been having an affair with my husband and um, kind of, and, and that, you know, she was, because of that affair, the husband was even contemplating suicide. There's also, you know, the, and to corroborate it, she supposedly gave facts about, you know, things which are on the, the complainant's body or like, you know, the, the knowledge which the husband could have only known if he was having an intimate affair with the survivor. Now, the thing is that, if you, uh, the first thing to remember is, as we said, that the survivor's cousin, Jaya, actually told the court that she filed that complaint as a false complaint. It was not true. She was, she had a personal issue with the cousin uh, and with her husband, and that was why she filed this. Now, the thing is, in fact, like even in that letter, it starts by her saying that the cousin, that, that the survivor uh, sent her text message complaining about her husband's inappropriate messages. Now, once you, you know, so even within that context, it's clear that there is not, uh, that it's, you know, that it's the survivor who was bringing something up here. But, you know, leaving aside any of the details of that complaint, um, the issue is that once she's saying that it's a false complaint, it's not relevant, unless key aspects of that complaint are proved to the court, whether through other people's testimony or through evidence submitted by the defense, not by the prosecution, including, you know, for instance, the messages which are supposedly involved. That complaint should be of no use. In fact, the court has this huge section talking about a breast examination and all, which was supposed to corroborate what was in that complaint. And actually, you know, that breast examination actually doesn't corroborate what was said in the uh, in the complaint. And yet, at the end of this all, the court is still saying, oh, you know, this this uh, this complaint is relevant, uh, you know, cast doubt on things, and therefore it it it, it becomes part of its whole. Uh, reasoning as to why it can't separate the grain from the shaft, and therefore it can't determine what exactly is whether the complaints, uh, whether the survivor story is entirely true, and therefore it has to acquit Molokal. So it's bizarre that it gives so much weightage to this complaint, which is essentially something which is trying to attack the character of the uh, survivor, even though that complaint was said by the complainant had to be false. And there are, and the one aspect of it which could actually be proved was shown to be false. Everything else is just speculation. Is just because the 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 relevant things which could have proved it true or false weren't brought up. But that wasn't something the prosecution had to do, which the courts, for some reason, says it had to do. Um, and so, you know, at the end of the day, it's 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 very very strange that this is then relied on to the extent it is by the court 
to cast doubt on the survivor's version. So this is another huge problem. Problem in last are the allegations that the survivor had a close relationship with Bishop Franco. The court in its judgment notes emails and photographs that showed the survivor had a close interaction with the accused. The court said, and I quote, she was the chief advisor of the bishop in all appointments and sometimes those appointments were made overruling the decision of the general counsel. End quote. Vakasha says that by making this observation, the court has failed to acknowledge the church hierarchy and the fear of retaliation by Bishop Franco and the church against the nuns if any disturbance was caused. So there are two things which I want to kind of look at here. One is uh, the way it kind of said that the survivor has given inconsistent testimony and the allegations that she had a close association with the bishop even after these acts of violence. Because this is, again, a very standard thing which is done in sexual violence cases um, where, it's, where the point is made, oh, but, you know, you were with the person afterwards or, oh, you talked to them afterwards and, and things were fine. But unless and until there's, you know, communication saying that, okay, what we, that any sexual acts were consensual, it's unclear why that should be relevant. Like, you have to look at social context, which in this case, for instance, involved, and this is, again, it's, 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 it's so bizarre. The court acknowledges that there are public functions and things which the survivor then attended the very next day with Mulakal, which is used to say that, oh, she is used to try and infer that she didn't have a problem with what he was doing. But if there were functions which she had to attend, Given the nature, anyway, this person was someone who had authority over that congregation of nuns, who had that who had authority over the convent. How could she not do it? So how on earth are you saying that the fact that she attended things is, uh, you know, events with him afterwards or continued to speak to him afterwards or, or even traveled in a car with him afterwards, that this is a reason to doubt her testimony? And the thing is, the reason why I've sort of clubbed this with the court's general comment about her testimony being inconsistent is because it's a it's like almost this attempt by the court to find ways to say that her testimony is inconsistent even though that doesn't really back up what it's trying to say and this is um what we see in the rest of the, the, the judgment as well like the key issue why the court says that it finds her version is inconsistent is that it says look when she filed her written complaint with the police the first information statement that it's called in September 2018, uh, sorry, in June 2018, at that point of time, she did not state that there was a penetrative sort of penile sex with the accused. And it says that, you know, even when you look at her medical examination, when she's asked to give the medical history of it, she doesn't tell the doctor there that, okay, there was penetrative sex. And that's initially, and so interestingly, that's in, in the initial medical examination that was specifically written down. But then that was later changed by the police uh, because uh, the because in her subsequent additional statement to the police, she said, look, on the first occasion, there was no penetrative penile sex, but on the other 12 occasions afterwards, there was. Now, the fact that she didn't disclose it in that first information statement or in the initial thing to the doctor can be explained by a lot of the social factors there. One, this is a person who's a nun, she's sworn a vow of chastity. It's very uncomfortable for her to talk about this, even when acknowledging that there was, for instance, uh, there were certain acts of physical, of, of, of a sexual nature on her. Penetrative sex becomes a violation of that vow, which basically is, you know, even if it's against her will, it's essentially a death knell for her as being a nun. So even though she may want to file that criminal complaint, there is a huge psychosocial issue here behind her being able to even talk about it. On top of that was the fact that when she was where she was recording the first information statement was not at a police station or in a pure like a completely secluded area. It was in the parlor of the convent itself. So even though yes, there were not supposed to be any other nuns in the room, 
it's possible that they could have hurt. So she was very uncomfortable. She was, in any case, she uh, she also says she wasn't very comfortable with the woman police officer who was taking a statement, which is, by the way, something which women around this country who are trying to, who, who try to make a complaint about sexual violence constantly face, uh, you know, a, a hostile attitude from the uh, police. They're trying to make that complaint too. So what you're looking at is very valid reasons for why she wasn't able to maybe tell the full story uh, at the start. And she's explained all of this in her testimony, her section 164 statement, which is where she's, you know, what she's giving under oath to a magistrate includes this detail. Her additional statement to the police includes this detail. The statement she's made, the testimony she's sworn to in court includes all of this. So it's, and her stance, by the way, is very consistent. So, you know, her description of what happened on the first occasion on 5th May 2014, whether you're looking at that first information statement, whether you're looking at what happened later, is, for instance, absolutely clear. Like, she does not say that there was penetrative penile sex in this, but she does mention that he inserted his fingers into her vagina. There's um, uh, the fact that he forced her to, he tried to make up a form of oral sex, then he used her hands. Now, these things already constitute an act of rape. They already constitute an act of rape. So, you know, even if we assume that the other 12 instances, there are inconsistencies about it, there is no inconsistency with what she said happened the first time on 5th May 2014. And therefore, if, if all you can say is that, okay, that was the one incident something happened, then that should be fine. And the court doesn't seem to have a problem with that initial part of what she says. But because of its other problems with her inconsistency, then discards everything she has said, which is not just seems unfair, but even if we go by the law and the way this is supposed to happen in the courts, what the courts have said about, you know, dealing with inconsistencies and in testimony, that's wrong. Because if at all we have to acknowledge that maybe there are some inconsistencies, then the court can maybe say, okay, we can't be sure on what happened on the other 12 occasions, but we can be sure about what happened on the first occasion because that testimony has remained consistent despite when you're saying that there are changes or whatever. You know, what you're looking at then again is the court trying to find a way to say that she's, that her testimony is inconsistent, even though on every other aspect, it's, 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 it's quite rock solid. Um, her version doesn't change. She's explained to you the context behind why she didn't give full information uh, earlier. And that, and that explanation fits perfectly within the sort of social framework here of who she is, the hierarchical nature of the church, which she was part of, all of that. And yet the court just, cav it, it, the way it dismisses what she said, her explanation is so cavalier. There's almost no attempt to really engage with it. The first part about, you know, not being able to uh, tell the police person, like she, the court just dismisses it without even any real reasoning. It, it, it talks about it in two occasions, but it doesn't really explain why it's dismissing it. And then the second part about um, uh, about the, the you know the fact that she was worried the people in the convent would hear her, it, it just again dismisses it by saying, oh, but the you know the mother superior had said she was not going to allow anyone in in the room. But people can hear if they're listening at the door. They could be outside. And again, remember you're you ha you are you're forgetting the context behind all of this. This is a nun in a convent talking about sexual assault, which is I mean it's it's anathema to someone to do that. So. You know, the way the court has, it's its like it's just decided to not take an empathetic view or take a, a view where it tries to understand what's happened there and just dismisses things in this quest almost to find that her testimony is inconsistent. The five points in the judgment show that the court did not acknowledge the testimony of the survivor and the witnesses in the case and the lens it goes to cast doubt on the survivor's testimony. So what's next? The prosecution has decided to move an appeal against the verdict in the High Court. 
According to a Wire report, the appeal will point to the shortfalls in the judgment. If you want to read more on this story, Vakasha wrote a detailed article breaking down the judgment. You'll find a link to that article in our show notes. To stay tuned with the story, follow the Quint on our social media handles. If you liked listening to this episode, please subscribe to The Big Story for episodic updates. We're available on Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, GeoSavan, and most of the other popular podcast streaming platforms. For other podcasts, please log on to the Quint website. And for any feedback, please shoot an email to podcast at thequint.com. Thanks for listening. Log on to the Quint website and check out our other podcasts.